Today's episode is sponsored by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your real credit card number. Your Privacy.com account lets you create virtual credit card numbers, which are linked to your bank account, that you can then use anywhere you would normally enter your credit card number. And if you're thinking that sounds sort of cumbersome to deal with, you'll be happy to hear that Privacy.com's mobile app and desktop browser extension make it incredibly easy to manage your wallet of virtual cards and allow you to autofill your virtual card number at the click of a button when you're shopping online. Couldn't be easier. You can find out more, get 100% free and unlimited access, and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com best. And you can find that link in the show notes. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the planned chaos cooked up by the radical anti-government conservatives running the country, otherwise known as the shutdown. But don't call it a shutdown. Clips today come from Off Kilter, Citations Needed, Planet Money, The Michael Brooks Show, Delete Your Account, The Green News Report, Mother Jones Radio, Past Present, The Diane Reem Show, and Gaslit Nation. did we get here? Why are we in shutdown, Sam? So uh, Democrats and Republicans had come together on a bipartisan agreement to keep funding the government. Uh, They'd struck the agreement. The Trump administration was on board. um, And then, unfortunately, somebody let uh, Trump watch TV that night. And people said some mean things about him on Fox News. And he thought the best way to handle this situation was to blow up the whole deal, shut down the government and and harm millions of people. And this is all back in December. This is all back in December. Um, You know, and and it was interesting. A lot of times uh, elected officials will will sort of try and, you know, pretend, oh, well, it's not me. It's you. Uh, But in this case, uh, Trump got all the TV cameras together to say, just to be clear, I'm the one who's doing this. It's me, Donald Trump shutting down the government. I'm totally responsible and I'm never going to blame anybody else. You I, can... I kind of want to come in with the exact quote oh, because it's it. even more damning than what you just said with your <laughs> paraphrase. He said, to quote him at his meeting with Pelosi and Schumer in December, he said, quote, I will take the mantle. I will be the one to shut it down. I'm not going to blame you for it. I have to say, as a recovering lawyer, like it doesn't get more thorough or complete than that as a statement uh, about this being his shutdown. Yeah, although I do think we need to do like narrator's voice. He did blame other people for the <laughs> shutdown. <laughs> right. But but yeah, no, I mean, that's very clear. And so, you know, this is the Trump shutdown, the Trump temper tantrum. That's what's going on. That's why we're here. In April of last year, April 2017, Adam wrote an article for The Nation headlined, It's Not a Government Shutdown, It's a Right-Wing Coup. And so I actually suggested uh, that we talk this out in a news brief. Obviously, retweeting the article is is great, but you know, not every, everyone reads. And uh, nobody, Adam, I'm sure nobody has reads. Plenty. No, nobody reads. Nobody, nobody reads. reads. Nobody reads. Um, I don't read. And don't uh, it. you know, and Adam certainly has a lot to say about this. And in the current context of what's happening right now with the current news about the. I shouldn't say it, but I'll say it. Shut down. I thought we could we could kind of talk that out. Adam, what say you? Well, it, first off, the term government shutdown is a, is a is a pretty is a pretty sinister propaganda term. Um, 
And I know it seems like I say everything's a propaganda term in the show, but it actually is. And the reason why it is is because the government doesn't actually shut down. Certain parts of the government shut down, and those parts are almost always, without exception, liberal parts of the government. So really what it is when the government shuts down, it's a liberal government shutdown. Or to put it in more provocative terms, it's a right-wing coup or a sort of soft coup. And this is something that that Democrats have kind of gone and generally gone along with because the core axioms of the right-wing government, which is all the far right has ever wanted to like have, is the Defense Department and the activities of finance um, and business. And those are never, 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 never touched. So mm-hmm. during the last shutdown in 2013, I'm going to list off a series of things that were shut down or were yeah. cut or were about to be cut before they ended it. Libraries, right. tax collections, national parks, labor and safety regulations – the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which oversees the derivatives market, environmental regulations, financial reg- regulations, welfare, and uh, WIC, which provides food for poor families. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What was not touched during the last shutdown was the military, presidential vacations, uh, soft power, clandestine power like the CIA, soft power like USAID, um, the bombing of seven countries, NSA's bulk surveillance, the agencies that prop up the oil and gas industries, the CIA's arming of uh, the Syrian rebels. And the FBI's elaborate Muslim entrapment regime. None of these things were touched during the last shutdown. Exactly, exactly. So it's it is so fundamental to to remember <laughs> that it's not like during a government shutdown, all U.S. military and uh, intelligence operatives around the world just kind of like sit in their yeah. hotels, embassies, bunkers, uh, you know, tanks, and just kind of like sits there until Congress gets their shit together. Yeah. That's not what happens. Under the rules, there there was some military that was going to have to be curbed. And then, of course, Congress had a special vote to prevent that. To make sure that that didn't happen. Exactly. That's always what happens, and that's what's going to happen again, because Democrats don't want to say they shut down the military. Um, because they, it's, you know, one could argue it's because they'll, they'll be demagogued against that in some future election, but really it's because the Democrats actually do love the military because they're a fundamentally conservative party. Um, but the whole premise of – so here's how it works, okay? It's important to understand this. There's this really sinister concept of essential and non-essential government. And you hear people throw this around a lot, like essential things will stay open. And it's a very fascist or I think very right-wing premise that there are certain parts of the government, like the military and the police and the FBI, that are considered essential. And it's, again, the reporters and, and anchors will just sort of mindlessly say, oh, it's, you know, essential things will stay open. And we just sort of accept that that's true. Mm-hmm. But we never interrogate what it means to be essential. Why is feeding children not essential? Why is the, why is the FBI's... Um, civil rights department. Why does that get curbed and, and cut during shutdowns, but mm-hmm. not their, mm-hmm. their, their anti-terrorism because it's not considered essential. Mm-hmm. The whole idea that there is essential, not essential government is effectively an extra democratic and extra legal mechanism to cut left-wing programs without any input by the voters at all. So here's how essential is determined. Exactly. How does this actually play out? Well, in the 1970s, um, Jimmy Carter's attorney general wrote a memo that outlined what is and what isn't essential because this is ultimately the legal mechanisms for this are, are set up by the Department of Justice. They're set up by the Attorney General. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And according to McClatchy, essential is determined, is defined as that which, quote, protects life and property. This is a fundamentally reactionary idea, right? Because property is elevated above feeding the poor. Property is elevated mm-hmm. above mm-hmm. above preventing, you know, hate crimes against minorities. Mm-hmm. Property is elevated above education, science, and the arts. Property is put above protecting the vulnerable. Property is put up above... Um, all these sort of important liberal government programs. And the thing is that this is, there's no input from the voters here. Well, each department, so the Department of Agriculture, Department of Defense, the Department of whatever, mm-hmm. they, in concert with uh, the heads of, of congressional committees of their respective departments, they just meet, they literally meet in some back room and fucking smoke cigars and decide what gets cut. 
There's no exactly. vote. They're like, well, this is essential. That's not essential. This is essential. That's yeah. not essential. Now, when we pass these laws in the 60s and 70s to provide health care to the poor and to provide education for the poor, we didn't pass them and say, by the way, these are not essential. There's no like mechanism up front to make that determination. It's just something that's arbitrarily decided by by 10 people in a back room somewhere without any input by the voters. And what's interesting to me is that nobody really questions these these premises. They don't question the idea of essential and not essential because you're not allowed to question the sanctity of the almighty military. They don't question exactly. um, the legal mechanism, the sort of oversight, the, the, the democratic input into these processes. And, uh, you know, it's just one of these things that we just mindlessly say government shutdown. It's not a government shutdown. This was laid bare even by the Washington Post. Uh, you actually cite this in your in, in your April 2017 piece, Adam, that the Post had an article about what was going to be shut down as opposed to not. And they kind of lay it all out in, in this single sentence. It's this. Quote, although agencies like the FBI and the Drug Enforcement Agency will continue their operations, the Justice Department will suspend many civil cases for as long as the government is shut down. So, I mean, you can you can see right there. It's like, right, what's going to keep going and what is deemed and what is deemed expendable? The Department of Justice's civil civil legal actions are, are typically over financial regulation and civil rights. They don't sue someone for being a, you know, a terrorist or they don't sue drug dealers. Um, so again, like the more, the more liberal elements of the government, that which, that which, you know, ameliorates it and serves the general public, like parks and libraries, these things are somehow arbitrarily determined not essential. And I, and I find that it's just a fundamentally capitalist way of viewing because it elevates property above all these other things. Okay, so in order to understand the first government shutdown ever, we really need to take you back to the Civil War. In 1861, almost all of the Southerners who were in Congress surrendered their seats to go fight in the Civil War as Confederates on the battlefield to support slavery and join their new government, the Confederate States of America. Back then, Democrats were a little different. And Republicans were leading the charge for black rights. The Republicans are the ones who said we need to end the enslavement of other human beings. And ultimately, we need to guarantee that African-American men have the right to vote. So when Southern Democrats lose the Civil War, they're totally powerless. They had left Congress. But they do slowly start winning their seats back. And 14 years after the war, they gain control of both chambers, the House and the Senate. And just picture this. We're talking about actual Confederate officers who fought against the United States. It's so astonishing because really they've been fighting on the battlefields for four years. And this is not a little war. Just, you know, we're talking four years, a destroyed country, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dead, billions lost. And and these guys have literally been on the fields shooting at the same people that they're going to be sitting with in Congress. Wait, like actually shooting at people who were other congressmen? Yeah. These are literally the same guys. This is not like, I mean, they weren't necessarily on the exact same battlefields. But yes, these in Congress are people who wore the uniform for the United States government or for the Confederate States of America and tried to kill each other. And what these Democrats couldn't do on the battlefield, they decide they're going to do in Congress. Stop 
black rights. Only this time, not with their rifles. With their purse strings. Democrats say, hey, President Rutherford, we will fund the army, but only if it becomes illegal for the army to protect black voters at the polls. We will fund the courts, but only if it becomes illegal for the army to protect black voters at the polls. There are a number of cartoons in the newspapers about how the Confederates have taken back over Washington and how they are deliberately starving the United States Treasury the same way that they starved Union prisoners. And there's images of prisoners as skeletons saying, boy, this feels awfully familiar. What are Democrats saying at the time? Are they like really proud of this? Were they bragging about starving the government, as you said, or shutting the government down? Absolutely. The Southerners, absolutely. They're like, we are back in town. And we. one of them literally gives an interview to a newspaper in which he says, we were crazy to leave during the Civil War. We should have just stayed in Congress and gotten our way by not funding the government. But there is one member of Congress in particular who is telling Rutherford B., This is total intimidation. You cannot cave to the Democrats. James A. Garfield from Ohio, uh, you know, a Civil War veteran. Is Garfield the one with the nice blue eyes that you keep mentioning? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Oh, I can see the eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) I can see that. (laughs) Wait, I want to see what he looks like. All right, let's Google him. Okay, okay, look at this. (laughs) Okay, but like if you had to choose a cute president from the late 19th century. I I don't think he would be the one. All right, fine. James A. Garfield, to me, takes the 19th century cake, but whatever. He was the minority leader of the House of Representatives, a Republican, and he says this is completely outrageous. Democrats can't get what they want through the normal process, so they are destroying the government. Hayes and Garfield look at what they're doing and they say, this is revolution and this is revolutionary and this is a complete perversion of the way the American government is supposed to work. You, a faction cannot shut down the government, cannot starve the United States government to death to get its way. Once you have admitted that as a legitimate tactic of governance, you've destroyed our American constitution. So Ruthie B is convinced. He needs to dig in his heels. No compromises. Ruthie B, we feel very bad that Rutherford has stuck all these years, so we're rebranding our Ruther friend. Notorious RBH <laughs> writes in his diary, this will be a severe, perhaps a long contest. I do not fear it. I do not even dread it. Damn. Gangster! Yeah. <laughs> So now every time the Democrats try to sneak in this rider, this no more protection for black voters at the polls, Ruthie B comes in with a veto. He vetoes five bills. Democrats eventually give in and end up funding all but one small part of the courts. It's basically a very mini shutdown. And Rutherford B. Hayes declares victory, says the Democrats didn't want to fund the army, the executive and legislative branches, and Republicans stopped them. Now, Heather says it's hard to track down the precise date this shutdown ended, but she says it really doesn't matter. A couple hundred court workers weren't paid, but they basically just build the government later. This was not a fight about paychecks. This was a fight about principles. Taking the government hostage felt so radical, so over the top, and ultimately so pointless that no one tries this tactic again for almost a hundred years. People recognize that you could not govern by extremism. And that system of government really didn't happen again until the modern era because there was a premium on abiding by our constitutional norms and by working things out between the different parties that wanted different things. But apparently, 
a hundred years is just long enough to forget the lessons of history. Budget rules change in the 1970s, and shutdowns start to creep back in bit by bit. There are a few small shutdowns in the 70s and 80s. But it was House Speaker Newt Gingrich who returned the shutdown to its fully weaponized status in the 1990s. Yeah, he used the tactic twice and at one point closed the government for 21 days. That set the record for the longest shutdown ever until now. Shutdowns? are back. And what's significant about the rise of the tactic of shutting down the government in the present is that once again, it's being advanced by absolutists, by extremists who say, we don't want to compromise, we want things our way. And that is not part of our American system, which has checks and balances, it has rules. Heather posted an 11-part thread on Twitter about the similarities between the current government shutdown over a border wall and the very first shutdown over Black voters. She says, this is what Hayes and Garfield stood against. Against people who had convinced themselves that what they wanted was worth making everyone suffer. The idea that a few people, a few men, a few white men should control American society is not at all unlike the ideology of the people currently in charge of the Republican Party. And that argument that, in fact, they are the ones who should say what is right for America, despite what the rest of us think, is not at all unlike what the Confederates were doing in 1879. We should say that Heather describes herself as a Lincoln Republican, and she says she gets hate mail from both sides. But she says, look, criticizing the current government shutdown is not about her personal politics. This is just a terrible tactic. It never works. And what it does is it backfires on the faction that does it. So the people who are backing this shutdown essentially have two options. They either have to be assuming that they're going to be able to control government entirely, that is, take over the government and never let anybody else in it, which is a terrifying thought, or they have to assume that their faction is going to go down in flames because there has never been a case where a shutdown has ultimately ended in making that faction look better than it did before. The former Confederate Democrats who orchestrated the very first shutdown, they didn't get what they wanted out of it. They didn't stop soldiers from protecting Black voters at polls. Of course, yes, they did later get what they wanted by making it so hard for African-Americans to even register to vote. But they didn't get that through the shutdown of 1879. If you're looking for well-made clothes with no hidden agenda, look no further than Packed Apparel. Packed makes incredibly soft clothing for the whole family, all with a clean, green, do-gooder mentality. They use 100% organic cotton and other sustainable materials, but don't use toxic dyes, synthetic fertilizers, chemicals, and other gross stuff you don't want touching your skin or in your water supply. Plus, they partner with fair trade certified factories, where the people who make the clothes are actually treated with dignity and are given a additional wages to invest in their families and communities. But that doesn't mean that their stuff is going to be priced sky high because Pact is democratizing organic by pricing their clothes fairly. Tees are just $15, leggings 30 and undies 9 Now Amanda has had her new Pact sweatshirt for a couple of months now, so I asked her what she had to say about it and her response, it's soft, it's chic, and I wear it all the time. All of which is true. 
So shop women's, men's, and kids styles at wearpacked.com and enter the code BESTOFLEFT, all one word, at checkout for 25% off your first order. That's W-E-A-R-P-A-C-T dot com and the code BESTOFLEFT. Sometimes cliches are true, and when politicians and writers and journalists and activists say, look, this ridiculous, demented game that this ridiculous, demented president is playing has real human consequences, that's the truth. That's the profound truth, and those human consequences are only going to increase. And we need to get to a deeper understanding, not only of the human consequences of this shutdown, but also the broader story that this fits into in terms of trust in federal government, what government is, and also specifically programs uh, for the poor and how we think about poverty. I grew up in a way where these programs, these issues affected me personally. There's times growing up where there's no doubt that I would not have been able to eat if there were not things like SNAP benefits. Houses wouldn't be heated. Rent wouldn't be procured. This is life or death stuff. And I could speak to this um, uh, even uh, you know myself on a personal level. So let's look at what this has happened, what has happened so far. 380,000 have been furloughed and 420,000 are working without pay. There's 800,000 federal workers without pay total. The shutdown has gone on for 25 days. And of course, as we know, Trump is holding the country hostage to pay for a ludicrous, nonsensical, fantasy-based, and of course, fundamentally, not only delusional, but of course, xenophobic, conspiratorial, border wall nonsense, none of which should be indulged rhetorically by Democrats as they make their own sort of noises about border security. What we need is, in fact, a demilitarized border. The USDA, the Commerce Department, Department of the Interior, Department of Transportation, State Department, Justice Department, Homeland Security, U.S. Treasury, HUD, and and HUD are affected. The Department of Defense most certainly is not. The Coast Guard is part uh, funded under the Department of Homeland Security, so they are going without pay. And it hits, of course, as everything does, the most vulnerable, the hardest. Native American tribes are suffering radically under the shutdown. Treaty obligations require the U.S. government to provide many services in tribal areas. With the shutdown, food programs that that 90,000 American Indians rely on are under threat, as well as, of course, healthcare services. 1.9 million are reliant on the Interior Department of Indian Affairs for basic services, which they are not receiving. In vast rural areas, people of all backgrounds, uh, including, of course, those living on reservations, are snowed in, unable to leave their home because federal funds for road clearing are not being distributed. Low-wage workers are threatened. Contract workers could potentially lose health care. Food benefits, food SNAP benefits, which I just talked about in my own life, are under threat. The SNAP program reaches 42 million Americans. That is 13% of the population. Housing vouchers affect 2 million people under threat in HUD. The USDA helps provide support for rural Americans with uh, rent, repair, and buy homes. And this also is jeopardized because of the shutdown. The EPA is shut down, uh, as well as food inspections. This is affecting everything from the safety of the food on your plate to, of course, the monitoring of the ecology of the country. And of course, 
it's really important here because in many respects, this already profoundly pared down government we have, this one run on austerity, this run where, where everything is subordinated to government logic, Republicans even want to destroy the last minor remnants of. And all too many neoliberals and Democrats want to privatize and create complicated, convoluted public-private schemes. But this is what this actually looks like in terms of actual practice. People deal, but and at the same time, people dealing with the federal government have to navigate vast bureaucracies and vast mazes. Many of which, particularly when they're dealing with poor people, are intentionally designed to make it maximally hard to access essential benefits. Trump's more than happy to hold working and vulnerable people, as certainly Mitch McConnell is as well, to to hold working and vulnerable people hostage for his border wall. Attacking vulnerable people is the point. I'll see ordinary people say things that they have no um, kind of uh, financial stake in. So it sort of surprised me. One is, oh, these federal workers, they have all this great stuff. Like, what are they complaining about? Like, so they get a week off or something. It's like, I've been talking to these guys. They don't actually make that much. Many of them, you know, their definition of like, uh, you know, they have these Cadillac healthcare plans and benefits and stuff. I mean, their benefits are like, relatively speaking, uh, okay, but that, I mean, it's the United States. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's great, you know? They also won those, I think it's important to say, they won those benefits through union contracts that Trump has spent his administration attacking the federal workforce, trying to make it less secure. This is actually, just to speak to the austerity point, another way in which the the shutdown is implementing austerity by further jeopardizing the, the right. economic situation and the employment situation right. of these these workers with still some of the more preferable, if still, you know, exploitative and coercive contracts in America. Yeah, let me talk about unions for a second. I had a source in FAA I mentioned this administration before, and um, I asked this person, I said, why aren't you guys striking? I mean, you're being forced to work without pay, which is, you know, insane. And I'm thinking that's probably, that's got to be the perfect sort of like organizing environment to do something like that. This person said, um, everyone is very acutely aware of, um, when Reagan fired literally like, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like tens of thousands of um, striking uh, FAA workers in the eighties, totally illegal in violation of, uh, you know, basic labor law, but you know, the Reagan administration, a lawless administration, like so many, and uh, that stuff has an effect. People remember these things, you know, it sets precedent. People think, well, what if I get, if I get fired too? And so uh, the, it's sort of interesting. You see the the sort of like wonk lib class sort of want things to be run a little bit more efficiently, but the the mechanism for that would be labor standing up to the administration right now and forcing forcing uh, Trump to back down. But they just lack the power to do so. So now we have this just insane dysfunction. Yeah, something that I've heard actually from talking to workers in the uh, you know UC system here in the Bay Area is that the USDA facility in Albany, California. Uh, you know, currently has no janitors staffing it. Everybody's on furlough. And uh, so 
you have dangerous chemicals that are building up in these labs could be a real health threat. Yeah, I have this terrible fear. And uh, many folks, I'm going to do, I'm doing a story on, I did a story on FEMA and all of these disaster response things that are just completely suspended because of the shutdown. Um, the, the great fear on the part of people in a lot of these um, types of types of government agencies are that the end of the um, government shutdown is going to be some horrible humanitarian catastrophe. Of course, beyond the grinding austerity we're seeing now, but some kind of maybe a disease outbreak or a, um, mm. they have all these. I'm doing a story now on they're, uh, they're supposed to have these uh, chemical inspectors that go around and not necessarily like counter terror, but just like anytime a factory has a bunch of fertilizer, something could go wrong and that could explode, you know? And so you're supposed to just have these basic regulations in place to ensure that, um, you know, safety is being observed. Uh, and, and, and this person was terrified because every one of these chemical inspectors is not working. They're all furloughed. So there's for, for this particular DHS component, there's literally no oversight anymore for like chemical stockpiles. And they were just scared that the way, you know, that some horrible kind of movie scene would happen from like a Michael Bay movie or something. And then that's the end of the, that's the end of the shutdown. Cause it's clear that Trump is going to play chicken with this as long as, as long as he can. Absolutely. And I mean, at the same time, we're hearing all of these horror stories from reporters. Um, we have media figures who are talking about feel good stories. I'm, I'm sure you saw that tweet by Stephanie rule from MSNBC who said um, she tweeted, there's always, you know, good news somewhere. A furloughed worker was so in need of Ugh. cash that she pawned her wedding ring. This feel Ugh. good. Remember when the woman's family learned what she'd done, they contacted the pawn shop owner and bought it back for her. And this is not the first time we've seen situations where Poor people are having to sacrifice the little that they have in order to make it through another day, and yet it's being spun into some courageous effort. But it highlights the situation that many are facing, how Americans are one hurdle away from catastrophe. Yeah, is that depressing? The, what do they call it? Perseverance porn? I mean, Yeah, that's exactly it. what it is. And it preys on this good-natured uh, – the people purveying it probably aren't good-natured, but the people that sort of uh, – you know. Fall, fall for it. I think there's this good nature attitude, like, oh, someone's trying to help someone else. And then without thinking about the systemic factors, like, why do they need to help someone to begin with? Like, why can't we just give them food yeah. and, and the resources they need? Exactly. It, but that's just too, you know, people don't think in those terms because there's not enough consciousness around these kind of things. Yeah. And that's another reason why we're sort of not hearing more about what's going wrong is because we have people like her more or less putting these stories out there to go, you know what, even though this is bad, I mean, there's still some good there. there people are still finding a way when in reality, they shouldn't be going as far right. as having to sell their, their material goods in order to eat. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that the most important effects of the shutdown are always going to be the ones that, as we mentioned before, affect, you know, nursing mothers, children, uh, you know, food stamps are going to stop going out next month. That's has to be the first talking point. Um, you know, instead people on, you know, on cable news, you were talking about sort of sob stories and sell, uh, sentimental stories on MSNBC. I watched a little bit as much as I could stomach. I just saw literally just sob stories and sort of things that are heart wrenching and cry out for a solution. But the only solution then that you're offered is a deal. Democrats and Republicans have to come together, et cetera, et cetera. And it really does cry out for 
something stronger than that and you know alternative institutions as we always like to bring it back to that could actually help marginalized people and the people that are vulnerable when these recurring situations inevitably happen weather the hardship Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Errett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter, with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule, for under $25. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. National Parks advocacy groups say the Trump administration's decision to keep some national parks open with little or no staff during the shutdown of the federal government could lead to permanent irreversible damage to public assets and serious loss of revenue. No one is collecting entrance fees at national parks or enforcing regulations that protect the parks and its visitors. No one is collecting trash. Bathrooms are overflowing, except where local volunteers have stepped in. Yeah, it's been local folks, uh, contractors who are pitching in, buying toilet paper, cleaning out latrines. It should not happen this way. Even parts of Yosemite National Park had to be shut down because visitors were using the roadside as a toilet. The government shutdown is also taking a toll on science and research as well. Many government scientists' work has been halted because they are barred from doing research or participating in official activities during the shutdown. At the annual Meteorological Society conference in Phoenix this week, many studies on climate and weather had to be withdrawn because National Weather Service and NOAA scientists are barred from attending. Barred from attending? We're talking about hundreds of scientists who are not allowed to go because of the shutdown? Right. But there are some bright spots. The ongoing shutdown is also delaying controversial oil and gas exploration in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. And it's also preventing federal agencies from approving permits for oil and gas pipelines and oil industry seismic testing in the ocean that harms marine life. Well, isn't that just like you finding an upside? Public health experts are warning that President Trump's high-stakes shutdown of the federal government over funding for his border wall, now the longest-running government shutdown in U.S. history, is becoming a danger to public health. Becoming? Not only has the Food and Drug Administration suspended food safety inspections, but the Environmental Protection Agency pollution inspectors are also furloughed. No one is checking chemical factories, power plants, oil refineries, water treatment plants, or thousands of other industrial sites for pollution or safety violations. I would say for the Trump administration, that's a feature, not a bug. It could be. Cleanup work at Superfund sites is suspended. Forecasters are working without pay at the National Weather Service, meaning weather models are not being maintained, launched, or improved. 
amid extreme winter weather. But don't worry, the Bureau of Land Management is still on the job. It's at work right now on behalf of the oil industry, holding public meetings in Alaska to push forward plans for controversial new oil and gas leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Even during the federal shutdown? Yes. Nice. Here in the U.S., forestry experts are warning that wildfire prevention is yet another casualty of President Donald Trump's high-stakes shutdown of the federal government to demand funding for his border wall. Prevention measures to reduce the risk of out-of-control wildfires like controlled burns and debris clearing, which usually take place during the winter, have been halted during this ongoing shutdown. It's now the longest in U.S. history. Well, I guess we don't have to worry. I'm sure the next wildfire season won't be bad at all. No preparation needed. Colorado State Forester Mike Lester told CBS Denver that the shutdown has drastically reduced staffing at the U.S. Forest Service during this crucial window of opportunity. Every day we miss where we, do, where we have snow on the ground and good atmospheric conditions is a day that we can't reclaim. We don't have enough staff resources to really get the job done that we need to get done. So let's start with the basics. We've never seen anything quite like this before, right? We've never seen a government shutdown go on this long before. It's been uh, well over uh, three weeks now. So that that time is very unprecedented. One thing we hear again and again is Obama shut down the government too. So shut up. What are the big differences between this shutdown and the September 2013 shutdown under Obama? Well, during the Obama shutdown, what was going on was that members of Congress, Republicans who did not like the Affordable Care Act, did not want to approve any uh, budget measures that had funding for the Affordable Care Act. So it's a little bit different. Barack Obama was defending um, existing law, whereas President Trump is asking for money for a new initiative. At PolitiFact, you and your team have been publishing answers to common questions from your readers. What's been the top question? Well, I think people want to know when it's going to end. And unfortunately, we don't know the answer to that because um, it's already gone on longer than any shutdown before. And it's really not clear if the parties involved are negotiating in earnest or not. I think President Trump has um, changed positions several times in previous negotiations, so there's not a lot of trust there. And the House Democrats just really are seem very much opposed to this wall. In a, in a traditional political time, you'd expect them to do some horse trading. I don't like this, but I'll give you that if you give me this. And it's just not clear that any of that is going on right now. So you're saying no one seems to be anywhere near being on the same page, even this far in. It doesn't seem like it. The government isn't entirely shut down. Parts of it are open. What happened was when the funding ran out, some of the departments were out of money and some weren't. So the ones that don't have any money are closed and the ones that still have money are open. It's it's not as if the government is completely shut down. It's kind of half and half. That might be one factor that's extending this. Here's a good question from your PolitiFact team's reporting. How can the government force employees to work without pay? 
Yeah, this one is really strange because when I first heard of this, I couldn't believe it. I was like, how can the government force people to work without pay? But it's what is happening now. It is under legal challenge. Some of the federal employees are saying it shouldn't be legal to force people to work without pay. But those cases are winding through the courts. So um, right now, it seems to be able to be the case that they are working without being paid. This one surprised me. You write that there's no necessity that federal workers are repaid lost wages. That just tends to happen afterwards. But it's not guaranteed, just promised. How does that work? In past shutdowns, and actually in this shutdown, they have passed legislation and President Trump has signed it that says the employees will get back pay. So once the government reopens, um, they, they should get that back pay. Got it. We've been hearing stories of workers calling in sick so they can take extra jobs to make ends meet, like TSA agents. I'm presuming they're taking a big risk. They could still get fired, right? Um, it depends on the specific case. I mean, there's there are civil service laws that govern. I mean, obviously, people aren't supposed to call in sick if they're not sick. Um, whether, whether they, you know, their supervisors can prove that or whether they decide to enforce that. I think those are open questions. Um, right now, uh, things are in, in such flux. Like it's not in some agencies, supervisors aren't showing up to work in other agencies, in other agencies, they are. It's just, I mean, in some cases, um, the government is communicating with workers by email when they're not supposed to be checking their email. It's just like, there is a lot of, uh, I would say, confusion and uncertainty going on right now. So as far as like whether they're really going to be able to punish workers who don't show up, I think that's a case-by-case basis. Elsewhere in the world, governments tend not to shut down absent a major existential crisis or a coup of some sort. But in the U.S., it's become kind of commonplace. Why is that? Yeah, and I think, first of all, we should say it's become commonplace really within kind of more modern American history. So since 1976, there have been 19 government shutdowns. But before that period, what's that? That's a lot. Yeah. But before that, it happened very, very rarely. And so I think we should think about that and what that means. But your question about comparing government shutdowns in the US to the rest of the world is a really important one, I think, because I think there's a way in which one could maybe assume that government shutdown is just kind of an inherent instability in democracy that we just kind of live with. But when you compare us to other Western democracies like Australia, for example, or Germany, they don't really have government shutdowns. And that's when you see that actually our system, we've created mechanisms that allow and make government shutdown possible. And those other democracies have done exactly the opposite, that they've put mechanisms and procedures in place to actually prevent government shutdowns from taking place. Which makes sense, right? <laughs> like you right. want to have your federal government, especially when the government does as much as the government does in the modern era, you want it to be up and running consistently. And in fact, there have now been, because of all of these shutdowns, so many carve outs as to what constitutes essential personnel that aren't 
affected by the mm-hmm. shutdown, that the mm-hmm. military isn't affected by it, that everyone's social security checks go out, the schools are still open. And I think that that's important because I think it's a recognition that actually we can't, we can't shut down the federal government completely because of what a catastrophe that would be, not only in terms of people's daily lives, but economically as well. If the federal yeah. government isn't paying people and it's not paying its debts, then there's a real problem. But then what's the point? Uh, I guess to play mm-hmm. devil's advocate. So like if the idea of, isn't the point of a shut of a built in shutdown mechanism to, you know, really make people stop and realize the severity of the situation. But if there's so many carve outs to make that severity, not that severe. So. Well, I think that's a great question, Natalia, because the other mechanism that other countries don't have that I was thinking about when you were making the comparison there, Neil, is another one that has been a problem in recent years, and that is the debt ceiling. Right. Other countries just automatically raise their debt ceiling so they can continue to make good on the money they've Mm -hmm. taken out and paying back their debts. And the U.S. government doesn't. In fact, the brinksmanship over the debt ceiling put the U.S. almost into default back in 2011 or 2013, and cost the U.S. its AAA credit rating. It it damaged the credit of the United States. Why would there even be such a mechanism for exactly the reason that you suggested? To call attention, to force legislators to actually do their jobs, to come to a deal on a budget, to figure out a way to pay for their spending. It's a tool for forcing action in a system that seems to reward obstructionism and inaction. And when you're part of a a democratic republic, um, that people don't want to make unpopular choices. And so this is about making them make unpopular choices. Turns out they still don't make those unpopular choices, which is why we continue to have these government shutdowns. Yeah, I think that's right, Nikki. And I would also just add that they can be useful political tools. If you look back at the history or the list of the 19 government shutdowns since 1976, one of the things that really jumps out is how often the government was shut down over some sort of battle about abortion. Mm. So if it's abortion funding mm-hmm. or abortion restrictions uh, that Congress was trying to push through, um, that came up over and over again. And I, th- I just think that highlights the usefulness of a government shutdown for political ends. Right. And we can also see the kind of damage it can do as well, mm-hmm. that it can be a really politically destructive right, move. Right. Mm-hmm. Something that we saw in the 1990s, the massive government shutdown of 95-96, which we talked about a mm-hmm. little bit last, last week, week because it's where Monica Lewinsky and mm-hmm. Bill Clinton first met. But that that had lasted – there had been an initial short shutdown and then there was one that lasted the better part of a month following that. And Republicans essentially – in terms of politics, lost that shutdown. They were blamed for the shutdown. They were blamed for acting like children. There's this great picture of Newt Gingrich on the New York Daily News cover where he's um, a cartoon of him as a baby stomping his feet, demanding that he gets what he wants um, or he'll hold the entire federal government hostage. There was a real price for that. Um, right. um, Bill Clinton not only won re-election in 1996, but in a fairly historic election in 98, the Democrats end up picking up seats in a midterm election, which is really unusual um, for the president's party to pick up seats. There are other factors that go into it, but the loss of the, the shutdown was part of that. And then in 2013, when I think it was Ted Cruz shuts down the government over um, – That's right over the um, ACA and the continued funding of uh, the Affordable Care Act, the Republicans lose that as well because it's seen as as nonsense, as a thing that one 
should not spend one's time doing, that you're holding the American people hostage for your own partisan political ends. Well, yeah, this whole thing. I mean, it's a pretty delicate, uh, it's, I don't want to call it the nuclear option exactly in these times, but it's a pretty, um, it's, it's a pretty precarious thing, right? Because I mean, the whole idea, you got to win the shutdown, as you say, Nikki, right. because if anything, I mean, to get to a shutdown is an, is a symptom of the kind of gridlock, which makes people on all parts of the political spectrum think that nothing can get done in Washington and that everybody is kind of part of the problem. So I think it's a, it's, it's a kind of difficult line to walk to get there and to be confident in any way that this is going to work for you or work for your party. Yeah, it's brinksmanship. And whoever blinks first tends to be the one who gets blamed for it all. Well, one more thing that I will say about um, the government shutdown, and then we can move on, is that we've talked here about how unpopular government shutdowns are and how brinksmanship over shutting down the government can actually really blow up in the face of the parties who are initiating it. And yet, we continue to see government shutdowns. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, about how politics, especially in the last 20 to 25 years or so, in an unusual turn for a democracy, have started to hinge more and more on pursuing vastly unpopular policies and political tactics. And I think part of the reason may be that when Republicans were pursuing some of these really unpopular policies in the 1990s, they paid a short-term price. There's the 1996 and 98 elections, but they didn't actually pay a long-term price, right? Right. They pursued really unpopular policies in terms of the shutdown, in terms of impeachment, which was the American people opposed impeachment by like – two to one, I think, by the time Republicans were pursuing it. And it damages the ability of Bill Clinton to carry out his agenda in the last two years of his presidency. And the Republicans sort of win the election in 2000 and control the Congress for a really long time and continue to, after the 2013 shutdown, even though Republicans took it on the chin for shutting down the government, for playing games with the the country's debt rating, 2014, they win the midterms. In 2016, they sort of win the election again. Now they have unified Republican government. There has not been a long-term cost to pursuing these unpopular policies, at least in terms of electoral victories. And I think that that might help explain, A, why they continue to pursue them, and B, suggests that there's maybe a flaw in our system as currently constituted. You know, at one point, Donald Trump said the shutdown could last for months or even years. There are a number of people who are suggesting that the ultimate motive here was to reduce the federal government. And we've seen so many federal employees who cannot withstand no pay leaving. Is that his ultimate goal? I think attributing uh, goals to Donald Trump or strategy to Donald Trump is giving him way too much credit. He's operating on impulse. Uh, having said that, we have a Congress, uh, Republicans in Congress, 
were large numbers of them are, uh, I think the only word I could use is nihilists, but people who do not believe in government and who are oblivious to the carnage that can come with these policies, who see this as a positive thing. And it, it goes beyond that. If you look at the way that the Trump administration has governed for the last two years, now we have a revelation that after the devastating hurricane in Puerto Rico, Trump said, I don't want a dollar to go to Puerto Rico. They didn't vote for me. Send it to Texas uh, and Florida. There is a meanness to this, but also a belief that if government disappeared, everybody would be better off. Now, it's not just that many federal employees will quit because they'll have to find jobs. That How are we going to recruit people? How are we going to recruit people to be in the federal government? You know, one of the things that's sort of a mantra for me when I go out and talk about governance is we have this enormous problem with cyber terrorism. It's the Russians influencing the election. It's the Chinese who are stealing corporate secrets and uh, doing what they can to disrupt other things. The electrical grid could go. The banking system could be hacked. It was Chinese government people now appears who got the 500 million accounts from Marriott and Starwood. We know that terrorists are doing this. So imagine it's recruiting season at Stanford. And all these bright electrical engineers and computer scientists are coming out and they're the booths for Snapchat and Intel and uh, Google. And they're offering staggering packages, money, perks, free food, all of that. And then they go to NSA and CIA and DIA, the government agencies that deal with cyber terror. And what they're told is, here's what we can give you. Three-year pay freeze probably turn into five years. We have no idea what kinds of shutdowns will take place, so you won't get paid during that time. We can't tell you right now if you'll have a job, you'll have to wait six months and then go through the security clearance process and then pay your way to Washington. It's tough enough if we don't have this kind of attack on the substance of government. The only good that comes out of this is people who think government has no impact on their lives are going to discover that these agencies affect their daily lives. We're not getting food uh, safety checks done. We've got all of these problems with security at the airports, the plane inspections from the FAA, on and on. These are things that government does for the good of the American people, and they're being undermined. We've been hearing a lot of talk from pundits saying that Trump, uh, in his wisdom, couldn't have possibly foreseen the circumstances, and that what we're experiencing is the result of mere partisan disputes and incompetence. They are wrong. This is an accelerationalist move where the Trump team can torpedo the economy, cause social unrest, destroy and plunder national landmarks, ostensibly delay their own prosecution, and have no oversight while doing so due to the combination of the shutdown 
shutdown and the many new resignations in the cabinet that have led to temporary acting hires. And I recommend that you listen to last week's episode, Cabinet of Horrors, um, to find out more about who's, well, not in charge. And so one thing I want to emphasize is that this is not surprising. This was always their intent. And I warned that this was coming in 2016, right after the election, in an article called We're Heading into Dark Times. I'm going to read a passage from it, published on November 18th, 2016. You can look to the president-elect himself for a vision of what is to come. He has told you his plans all along, although most chose to downplay or deny them. You can even look back to before his candidacy, where in February 2014, he went on Fox News to defend Russia. Why a reality TV host was on Fox News defending Russia is its own story. But here is what Trump said about his desired outcome for the United States. You know what solves it? When the economy crashes, when the country goes to total hell, and everything is a disaster. Then you'll have a, you know, you'll have riots to go back to where we used to be when we were great. That's a direct quote. This is what make America great again means to Donald Trump. It's how he's operated his businesses, taking advantage of economic disasters like the housing crash for personal gain. It's why, during a long and painful recession, he made you're fired a national catchphrase, because he understands that sometimes it feels good to know that the person getting fired, for once, is not you. He said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and people would still vote for him. And he said he could grab women by the pussy because, to quote, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. He's right about that last part. No one holds Trump accountable because he's exactly what he claimed to be railing against. An elite billionaire with no concern for the average person, a kleptocrat who enjoys taunting people less powerful than him with threats. When you have that kind of money, which Trump was given in birth and further gained through fraud, there are few limitations to the ways you can hurt people. He's right that the system is rigged. It's rigged in his favor. And now it's rigged against you unless we find a way to stop it. Trump's vision for the United States is echoed in that of his chief strategist, Steve Bannon, a man who even the very right-wing Glenn Beck described as a dangerous, sociopathic racist. In 2016, a reporter from the Daily Beast recalled this conversation with Bannon. I'm a Leninist, Bannon proudly proclaimed. Shocked, I asked him what he meant. Lenin, he answered, wanted to destroy the state, and that's my goal too. I want to bring everything crashing down and destroy all of today's establishment. So basically, all of this that you're seeing, the shutdown, the economic crash, the collusion with hostile states, this is planned chaos. This is not naivete. Um, and honestly, the only thing that's surprising me is that we didn't see them pull this sooner. We've just heard clips today, starting with Off Kilter, laying out how the latest shutdown got started. Citations Needed dug into the details of what gets shut down during a partial shutdown and what that tells us about the institutionally conservative nature of the country. Planet Money told the story of the first shutdown. The Michael Brooks Show explained why shutdowns hit the poor the hardest. Delete Your Account also looked at the shutdown's impact on the poor and the labor rights under attack. The Green News Report explained just a few of the environmental impacts of the shutdown. Mother Jones Radio spoke with a fact-checker about this and past shutdowns. 
past-present explained the politics of government shutdowns through time. The Diane Reem Show spoke with Norm Ornstein about the nihilism of the anti-government right. And finally, we just heard Gaslit Nation putting the shutdown in the context of planned chaos that is the through-line of Trump's administration. Now, we don't have uh, voicemails today, but I have one thing I want to uh, to wrap up with. And uh, honestly, this is a topic that I've just been sort of squirreling it away for a rainy day. Um, I don't know, conversation is light, voicemails are light. And, and so I'm pulling this one out of the, the filing cabinet. And it's uh, it's turning out to be perfectly timed because the primaries, if you haven't noticed, have essentially started. People have announced their candidacies. And uh, if you're like me, you're starting to have your PTSD flashbacks from the 2015-2016 primary races. So I wanted to address that. And this this whole story comes from totally unrelated, not talking about electoral politics. But uh, a few months ago, the conversation that was being had literally doesn't matter. But a, a, a listener wrote in and you know, so was sort of arguing against the point I was making on the basis of pragmatism versus idealism. And that conversation got me thinking. And I ended up writing a response to this person by email that I thought, that is such a good point that I just made. I should save that for later sometime. And that later moment has come. So many of you will have seen this. I start with a quote from the movie Lincoln, and the historical accuracy does not make any difference. I don't know if Lincoln ever said anything like this. It doesn't matter. It's a good point that stands on its own. And uh, and more importantly, it's not that just that it was said and it's a good point, but like it helped me understand a, a core truth about politics. And um, I mean, I, I know a lot of core truths about politics, but this one came to me and solidified when I watched the film Lincoln. So that's why it's important to me, and that's how I'm going to share it with you. So uh, this quote from Lincoln, and um, he's he's speaking with Senator, I think it's Senator Thaddeus Stevens, the, uh, the, the Tommy Lee Jones character, and they're going back and forth. Stevens is the, he, you know, he's the, you know, the ideologue. He, he knows what's right. He's unflinching. He demands that we do nothing but go forward uh, with righteousness as our shield. And Lincoln is like, I mean, he says, I admire your zeal, but he's, he's, he can't follow that path. And he explains why. So Thaddeus Stevens says, the people elected me to represent them, to lead them. And I lead. You ought to try it. And Lincoln says, I admire your zeal, Mr. C. Stevens, and I have tried to profit from the example of it. But if I'd listened to you, I'd have declared every slave free the minute the first shell struck Fort Sumter. Then the border states would have gone over to the Confederacy. The war would have been lost and the Union along with it. And instead of abolishing slavery, as we hope to do in two weeks, we'd be watching helpless as infants as it spread from the American South into South America. And Stevens replies, 
Oh, how you have longed to say that to me. You claim you trust them, but you know what the people are. You know that the inner compass that should direct the soul toward justice has ossified in white men and women, north and south, unto utter uselessness through tolerating the evil of slavery. White people cannot bear the thought of sharing this country's infinite abundance with Negroes. And Lincoln finally says, A compass I have learned when I was surveying. It'll... It'll point you true north from where you're standing, but it's got no advice about the swamps, deserts, and chasms that you'll encounter along the way. If in pursuit of your destination, you plunge ahead heedless of obstacles and achieve nothing more than to sink in a swamp, what's the use of knowing true north? And so now to quote myself as I replied in this email to a listener, because I can't, I can't say it better offhandedly than I, I wrote. Here's what I said. When I first saw that, it immediately clarified for me something very important about politics, that it is not a battle between unflinching idealism and thoughtful pragmatism. It's the partnership of the two. I largely see my role with the show as the metaphorical compass, finding and pointing due north as best I can, but on occasion I go out of my way to discuss the pragmatic strategy I think it will take to get us there. One of the biggest lessons I've learned in the 15 years that I've been closely following politics is that acting pragmatically is not a betrayal of one's idealism. It's idealism strategically pursued in the way one thinks is most likely to achieve the desired ends. End quoting of myself. And and now I have further thoughts, and, and I want to tie it into the election that's coming up. Just to begin, I, if it wasn't made clear, I fully understand that the word pragmatism, like it sort of gives me the creeps too. Uh, it, it's nearly synonymous in my mind, and I think in a lot of people's minds, with the term, you know, terms like moderate or even conservative or, you know, like conservative Democrats or whatever. They're the ones who are always arguing for pragmatism. And it's not the pragmatism you should have a problem with. It's their idea of pragmatism. It's their idea that moderation is the way to succeed, that they, they define pragmatism as moderate. And, and I reject that. So, you know, sometimes I think that the most pragmatic thing you can do is also a radical departure from the norm. And based on the outcome of the 2016 election, it now seems like the more pragmatic thing to have done would have been to nominate a genuine populist socialist to run against the fake populist corporatist. And there's every chance in the world that Bernie would have won and we wouldn't be in this situation and things would be much better. And, and so when I encourage pragmatism, I certainly do not mean that we should moderate ourselves for the sake of moderation or for the perception that moderation is the path to better outcomes. It certainly isn't, and I definitely don't believe that. But as we enter the third year of the Trump administration in the wake of that horrible election, uh, and we hold our breath each day as we learn what new horrors he's going to inflict on some marginalized group of people, I want to reiterate my thoughts on the Bernie or Bust movement. And to me, that is the epitome of radicalism without pragmatism. To be so insistent 
about not just pointing north, but also walking due north, regardless of the swamps, deserts, and chasms along the way. So, you know, during the 2016 primary, the term Bernie bros was coined, right? It was meant to disparage any and all Bernie supporters and basically trying to cast them as all white guys who especially who only care about economics. And so if you were anyone other than a white guy or you had any issues that you cared about other than economics, then you you couldn't possibly vote for Bernie. That's how that propaganda went. And obviously all the people of color and the women who supported Bernie were rightly offended by that characterization. But the Bernie or bust movement was different. It was of a different complexion, let's say. And, you know, it was a splinter movement. It was definitely founded by a white guy and very much, you know, supported predominantly by white guys. In other words, uh, as many people pointed out at the time, myself included, people who were not going to be negatively impacted if things went not for Bernie, but instead to bust. You know, prosecutors being told to disregard their discretion and always go for the harshest punishment, leading people to rot away in prison for far longer than they would have otherwise, is what bust looks like. You know, some number of Puerto Ricans dying when no help came after the storm, who may have otherwise lived, is what bust looks like. Far more civilians unnecessarily dying in drone strikes is what bust looks like. Migrant kids being taken from their families, psychologically tortured, and potentially destined to live out their lives as foster children and never knowing their parents is what bust looks like, none of which will ever affect almost anyone who supported Bernie or Bust or voted Green or cast some other protest vote or consciously decided to set out the election entirely as a protest. And, and so if any of you are listening, I already know at least one thing that's going through your mind. I'm sure there are many, but here's at least one of them, which is uh, that you're going to say that the exit polls and any other data, you know, the vote totals all show that Bernie or Bust and the Green Party and all the rest didn't flip the election, that, that they didn't make a big enough impact to get Trump elected instead of Clinton. And I don't know if that's true. Uh, I haven't looked into it. I absolutely don't care. I have no interest in having that debate. And here's why. Because if any part of your defense for your protest vote is premised on the idea that you and other people like you didn't flip the election in a negative way, then what would your argument be if the numbers told a different story? What if it turned out you run all the numbers, you get the vote totals, you get the exit polls, and it's and it shows, oh yeah, look, like all these people who who voted green or or, or Bernie or bust or whatever, uh, if they had voted their second choice, if their second choice had been Clinton, uh, if if they'd all done that, it would have been the difference. That it would have made the difference. If the numbers told that story, then what would your defense be? Because you couldn't possibly have known when you voted for Bernie or Jill Stein or anyone else in a swing state that it wouldn't make the difference and give the election to Trump. So to use that as a retroactive defense is completely logically bankrupt. And I would say the same thing about uh, Ralph Nader, who I generally like, who has defended his run in the year 2000, saying that he didn't flip 
uh, the election against Al Gore in Florida or anywhere else, and that he used that as his defense. And what I have to question is, if the numbers had been different, and it showed clearly that he flipped the election, I don't know how he would defend it, but he, he sure wouldn't defend it in the same way. And so if you want to defend yourself in some other way, that's fine. But to defend yourself saying, my vote didn't flip the election, therefore I'm justified, completely logically bankrupt. And, you know, if, if your friend is standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you walk up behind them and you give them a firm push, but they stumble and they fall, but they don't fall all the way down the cliff and die, you don't get to defend your actions by pointing out that they didn't fall to their, to their death, so it wasn't uh, your fault and, and you didn't do anything wrong. That is not how that works. So to sum all of this up, I rewrote the serenity prayer. <laughs> I've, I've never been religious in my life, uh, but even I know the serenity prayer. And if you take God out of it, it's quite good advice. But I, I rewrote it to help make this point. So here, here's the modified serenity prayer that I came up with. Thoughtfulness, grant me the insight to always point the way towards justice. The pragmatism to act in the ways most likely to achieve that justice and the wisdom to know the difference. That's it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com